Rock and Roll Grad School with your hosts, Heidi Hedquist and Luke Poling. Consider yourselves officially enrolled. Hello, kitties. We're going to have a really good time together. I'm going to do this without feeling uncomfortable once. Okay, well, I'm not going to laugh. Thank you. I don't know why you're uncomfortable. Like, I don't know. We met once and then we started all these podcasts where all we do is talk about inappropriate things and are Mm -hmm. never uncomfortable, but yet quoting Cheap Trick makes you uncomfortable. I think it is the performance aspect of it. And it's something where I feel like we would make fun of anybody else doing this. Well, then don't do it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, no, but I I like the way it sounds when I actually hear it on the show. I like like when other people do it, but... No, I like when you do it. Thank you. I Hello, kitties. Hello, kitties voice. I know. Hello, kitties. Welcome <laughs> to episode eight of Rock and Roll Grad School. Hopefully, you just finished episode seven. And if you're binging these and going through these, you you heard our conversation with Anne Magnuson. And we kind of ended on her West Virginia pride. Mm-hmm. And so we thought we would dig into the Y vault. The fact that we have a Y vault is... Pretty cool. Yeah, bizarre and surreal. It's very uh, Disney of us pre Disney. It is, yeah. No, it is definitely. Yeah, Malcolm Brenner is going back into the vault. Um well, yeah, he's he's with Song of the South. <laughs> <laughs> uh but we thought we'd uh share with you our conversation with John Ellison, a great singer songwriter who had the terrible idea of asking us to sing with him. Oh, I forgot. Which I think I, that part, that was in the intro. So we might cut that out and just put that up on YouTube. So you can enjoy that. Oh, I don't know. It's it shows us <laughs> how human we are. But Oh, I know. Yes. So, Our fellow, clay feet. Yes. <laughs> but he was a fabulous interview, a fabulous singer-songwriter, wrote at a very young age one of the most seminal songs of our time. Has mm-hmm. been recorded gazillions of times, mm-hmm. and gazillions of versions, all of which, or most of which, are lovely in their own right. Mm-hmm. And he was and sorry, delightful. Go ahead. No, he was delightful. Although I didn't get my hot sauce. Mm. I think it was spices, and has a connection to an upcoming guest. Yes. And on top of all of that, I was just reading something recently that did a breakdown of sort of the Insta single where people write something in response to an event happening in the world, releasing it, and recording it as quick as they can. And I'll, the, the first, the biggest example is probably Ohio by Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young. I, for some reason, keep going to Peace in LA by Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Mm-hmm. Not the most memorable of songs. I believe Prince did Baltimore. That's I probably believe. right. Yeah. Freddie Gray, I, mm-hmm. I believe. And John last summer, in the midst of all of the Black Lives Matter protests and the conversation kind of coming to the fore, wrote a really strong and, and powerful song called Wake Up Call. Is it Black Like Me, I believe? Yes. And right. yeah, it's really good. It is really good. And I think it kind of deserves to go on that list of sort of the Insta single. But it's interesting because I think, you know, like he says in the interview, he has been working on this for a while and that that time comes through. But he sort of 
ended up with the perfect time to release this and share this with everybody. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Yes. So okay. enjoy, John. Yes. Thank you. Yes. And it's delightful. Thrive safe. I guess it's a place to start. How does somebody born in a coal mining town end up writing one of the most famous songs ever? Well, I, I keep it short, please. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was destiny. Yeah. <laughs> Can't get any shorter than that. Uh, I, I was born in, in the coal fields. I wanted a better life. I saw how hard my father was working, never having anything. And um, I started playing guitar. Uh, I found it very easy to, to learn to play guitar. I learned by ear. And um, it was, once I learned one song, it just made me want to do it more and more and more. And that's, then I started writing songs. And uh, uh, when I was 17 years old, old enough to leave home, I bought a one-way ticket from Cold Fields and went to uh, New York, Rochester, New York, to pursue a career in music. And uh, in 19, I played with different bands up until um, 1964. I met some guys that uh, had the same dreams and goals, goals as I had. Uh, no one wanted to have a day job. We all wanted to uh, earn our living by playing music. And uh, so we, we called ourselves, we joined the band. I joined the band and we called ourselves the Soul Brother Six. And um, 1967, I, um, uh, we met a guy that wanted to manage us out of uh, uh, Philadelphia. His name was Walter Rayfield. Uh, he said we were a great band and we went to um, Philadelphia. En route to Philadelphia is when I wrote the song some kind of wonderful in the car. And um, it was um, because I was dating this girl in Rochester. And when I got ready to leave, uh, she packed me a lunch. And um, I told her she was some kind of wonderful. And I said, I'm gonna write a song about you. And uh, wow. so in route from um, between Rochester and Philadelphia, I think we were around Syracuse somewhere. I ate the sandwich and then I started writing on the bag. I don't need a whole lot of money. And reason for that first line was because all of us were broke. We had no money. I, I don't need a big fine car. The car we were riding in, you could look through the floor and see the highway. So that's why I said I didn't need a big fine car. I had everything I wanted because I was thinking about her, and she was some kind of wonderful. And you, you riding it in the car, you didn't have any instrument with you, did you? No, but I arranged everything in my head. And when mm -hmm. I arrived in... <laughs> When I arrived in Philadelphia, because uh, I was the uh, songwriter and, uh, and the arranger for the group Soul Brother Six. And so when we arrived in Philadelphia, uh, I told them I had this song that I wanted to teach it to them. And I told them how the backup vocal should go, the chorus of it. And I told the bass, I said, I want you to play boom, 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 boom. And I told the drummer what to play. And um, then I started singing it, and I told him in the backup vocals to come in, just some kind of wonderful, and that was it. And, uh, and then there was a DJ, his name was Ernie Fields. He was a friend of uh, the gentleman that 
one that was managing us, and he, he had called this DJ over to have a listen to this group that he brought in from Rochester. And the DJ heard the song, Some Kind of Wonderful. He said, whose song is that? And I said, it's mine. I just wrote it. He said, that is a hit. And he said, we got to record it. So they took us in the studio in uh, Philadelphia, and uh, we recorded Some Kind of Wonderful. And they, in turn, took it to a radio a program director at WHAT radio station. And the gentleman's name was George Wilson. George Wilson took the song to Atlantic Records, and they got us a record deal. It's just one of those magical stories you you hear, you know. And what what was that? I mean, that that feeling of just watching that trajectory. What was that like? Well, you know, it's uh, you can't can't put in words. I can't put in words because that was a a dream finally coming full circle for me, coming out of the coal fields and doing odd jobs, working working in car washes, working in restaurants, but holding on to that dream and the purpose that I came to uh, uh, to, to New York for. And when it finally happened, it was like, wow, I finally made it. And, you know, I went from uh, working in, in a restaurant to being on stage in front of, you know, screaming girls and, and you know, living the dream that I, I always wanted to do and playing my music and earning a living how I wanted to do it. When we've interviewed other musicians, sure. some have said that oh, we did this song, we had no idea it was a hit. We just thought it was a cool song. Right. Others, from the instant they started playing it, saying, oh, something clicked, and I knew it was something special. It was different than other groups. Did you have that feeling with this? You had everyone else telling you it was a hit. What did your no, heart I, tell you? I told them it was a hit. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> I knew I had, I, had, I had this feeling, this inner feeling, when I started playing the, the magic of that song, the, the drive and the some kind of wonderful, I knew it was a hit. What I didn't know and didn't, and didn't even fathom was that it would be recorded over and over and over and over and over again by other artists. I, I just right. figured it was going to be a hit for the Soul Brother Six, and... Um, which I knew that was going to be a hit. Has there ever been a version in all the versions where you've gone, oh boy, really? <laughs> what did you do to my song? <laughs> uh, I've heard a couple, <laughs> I've heard a couple <laughs> versions that uh, uh, that I didn't particularly like, but uh, overall, most of this, with the exception of one I would say were two versions uh, that was completely different from my arrangement. One was by uh, Joss Stones. It, when she sang it, she sang it completely, totally different. Uh, and um, I think Pam Greer did a version which was uh, uh, totally different. But uh, all the res- all the other artists that recorded the song, they they stayed right to the to the baseline and the, the exactly how I wrote it mm-hmm. which is a further credit to you in your songwriting because yeah, most people sure. get a hold of something and they want to just change it up because right, they right. want to make it their own but that it stayed so true is amazing yeah. so then 
fast forward from there, obviously you've had an incredible music career beyond that. Right. And have continued to do amazing things, including your recent song that you just uh, recorded. Right. Tell, tell us a little bit about that really quickly. And well, okay. I wrote that song actually in 2003. Wow. I wrote the, because of uh, how this country is and everything that's going on in it. And, and as you can see, if I wrote it in 2003, really nothing's changed except time. Right. And so yeah. my reason uh, for writing this song and, and putting it out um, is because to bring awareness to what what's really going on in this country and and give people uh, and I a look at it at the real problem and um, a lot of people I've had other interviews and they said oh this is a Black Lives Matter song it's not it's not about Black Lives Matter it's about this country and the direction that we sh we should be going in and um, uh, I just if you listen to the lyrics of that song they're spot on uh, because um, you talk, me, I grew up in, a, in I was, ne I never went to a restaurant until I was, I left West Virginia. You know, wow. the, I had to, uh, I, I wasn't allowed in restaurants. I had been turned away. I had been treated not like a, uh, not like a person. And uh, the only way that this country is going to move forward and that's with love you know we have to start showing love towards each other we have to recognize if we're doing something wrong to people someone we have to be able to look at this you know what that's not right and i can tell you uh like all the the, the statues that's being taken down that's not going to solve this problem uh you know it, if you look at and I, I can tell you, and I don't want to dwell on this, but I just want to say that, for example, for instance, myself, I've never looked at a person as a color. I look at everyone either they're nice or they're not nice. Okay. Uh, I'm, when I met my wife, I met my wife in 1968. People said I was crazy to, to even have a conversation with her because she was white. For me, she was just, I met her, she was a beautiful person. And uh, they, I've had pe people say, oh, you're crazy. Why do you want to marry this white woman? Uh, both, both races have said that to me. And here we are, this is 2020, four children and 15 grandkids later. Wow. And, <laughs> and we are still happy because we've never, we don't see color. And that's how, until this country, this world, Start just looking at people as people. And the, the big the problem is, and I, I'll say this and then we can, you can go to something else, is you can take down all the statues, you can remove all the names, but until people start to look at each other and say, you know what, you're no different from me, this problem will remain. And that that's the way it is because even today, 2020, I've been discriminated against. I've been wrongly treated because I have a business. And a lot of people, you know, once they, they 
they will love my product. And once they, they find out it's from a person of color, they don't want to buy it. They don't want it. They don't want to do business with me. I haven't done it. I can't change my color, you know, right. <laughs> no more than change you the can product, change yours. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> change the product. <laughs> so, you know, it, it's just, a, it's sad that we have to live in this kind of a, this country. And until people recognize, you know what, we're all the same. And, and everybody should have the same opportunities in, in this, this world. I mean, forget about the color. Color doesn't mean anything. And that's, as they say, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> <laughs> well, before we move on quickly, I mean, you look at your life story and right. your, your history. Okay. Uh, your grandfather right. was born into slavery, correct? Exactly. And then your 18-year-old well, nephew. I'll, I'll go into it if you want to. Um, since I came into this world, um, I didn't realize actually growing up that this world was so full of racism and discrimination until I became a teenager. My first encounter mm -hmm. was when there was a, a radio contest and I had learned to play the guitar. I only knew how to play one song, which was a song by Chuck Berry called School Days. So, it's a good one to know if you yeah. got no one. Yeah. <laughs> when I entered this contest, I was the only black person in the room, and I knew I was great. You know, I practiced and practiced. Well, when the judges called me in and I started singing, they said, okay, what are you going to sing? I said, I'm going to sing the song about Chuck Berry's school days. They said, okay, let's hear it. So I had my guitar. I said, up in the morning and out to school. Start playing the guitar. Within 10 seconds, the judge said, that's it. We got a winner. This guy, he said, this contest is over. And I, I was feeling great. I turned to walk out of the out of the room. He said, this contest is over. They forgot to turn off the intercom above the door. And as soon as the door closed, this one judge said to the other, he says, what the hell you mean we got a winner? And the guy said, well, this guy's great. And every, all, the, all the white contestants that were sitting there, they heard this. He said, I don't, what do you mean he, we got a winner? And the guy said, well, he's great. No one's going to be better than this. He says, I don't care how good he is. He's a goddamn nigger. And he's saying, there is no way in hell we're going to let a nigger win this contest. Can you imagine how I felt Yeah. to hear that? I hadn't done anything except walked in there and played my guitar. 16 years old. I knew I was great. And it was like someone put a knife through me. And, you know, I, I, I couldn't believe it. If I had lost because I cheated, I could accept that. If right. I wasn't good enough, I could accept it. Of course. But I lost because of something I couldn't change, which was the color of my skin. I couldn't change that. But that's right. why I lost. And But what it did for me, it made me angry. And I said, you know, tears came into my eyes. And I said, that's okay. You think you stopped me? You can't stop me. And that's that was that's been my 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 way of thinking. No one can stop you. May push me down, but I'm gonna get up, you know. And I'm not gonna hate you. I'm just gonna prove to you that you can't hold me back. And how is it after a lifetime of this sort of seeing this hatred firsthand, seeing this bigotry, 
seeing well, all this stuff happen. How do you not write a song called Some Kind of BS? Well, you know what? <laughs> that song, that's why I I called my friend. Uh, I'm working with a gentleman in Amsterdam. And uh, mm-hmm. we, we, we always say that God brought us together. When, when this happened with uh, uh, George Floyd, and, I, and that's when I pulled out the song and I said, Roger, you got to hear this song. I said, we need to put this out. My grandfather was born a slave in 1854. He died in 1941, passing on a dream. His oldest son was hanged in 1936 in Georgia for refusing to work overtime and for standing up for his rights. In 1955, a racist white man slit my brother's throat in a hospital in West Virginia where he worked. He was never charged. In 1969, I was hit in the left eye in Dayton, Ohio with a beer bottle by a racist white group. I was blind for over a year. In 1971, I was refused medical treatment for third-degree burns and not allowed in a hospital in Alexandria, Virginia because of the color of my skin. In 1998, my nephew's neck was broken by the police in Bluefield, West Virginia. It paralyzed him from his neck down. He was only 18 years old. The police were never charged. My father died in 1965, hoping his children's life would be better than his. We are tired of singing the songs, we shall overcome. We are tired of the I forgive you. We are tired of the injustice. We want justice now. This is a wake-up call, America. This is a wake-up call. This is a wake-up call, America. This is a wake-up call. This is a wake-up call, America. This is a wake-up call. Wake Up Call, Black Like Me, is available on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Music, all the other places you find digital music. And for more information on John and his entire body of work, which is unbelievable, check out johnellisonmusic.com. You can follow us on all the various socials. You can check out our website at rockandrollgradschool.com for more grad school content. And please leave us a review on iTunes. We're tired of asking our family members to do so. Today's show was produced by myself and Heidi Hegquist. Our reluctant executive producers are John Sovey and Sandy Stone. Our willing producers are Rachel Allen and Randy Jeanette. Our intern is Zach Jackson. Our graphic designer is Samantha Mastonen. This one's for Philippe. Thank you, good night, and may all your favorite bands stay together. We died for this country. Somebody tell me why. In this country of freedom and equality, we've been treated like we were the enemy. It's a wake-up call. This is a wake-up call. What we've endured is hard to define. We have a permanent scar in our hearts and minds. But through it all, we still stand tall, and we refuse to give up, and we refuse to fall. It's a wake-up call. We'll never
never be silent, we'll remain outspoken. We're a symbol of endurance and we'll never be broken. Our ancestors died passing on the dream that one day we'd be free, as impossible as it seemed. This is a wake up call, America. This is a wake up call. This is a wake up call.